We are in Acts chapter 10 and 11 this morning. When we were last together, we were in Acts chapter 9, and you recall that that was the occasion of God's extraordinary intervention in the life of Saul, this great persecutor of the church, and the cause of his conversion, of course, we know him as the Apostle Paul, and that really changed uh, in a demonstrable and remarkable way the course of church history, if you will. We could even say it was a turning point in the history of God's salvation as it was unfolding. Uh, And Now, in this remarkable conjunction of chapter 9 and chapter 10, in chapter 10, we come to another extraordinary intervention of God and the conversion of a man, a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. He's stationed in Caesarea. And uh, this is a remarkable series of events. And it it reminds me that the course of church history, in fact, our own experience would be different uh, if it weren't for what we encounter and read about in chapter 10 and in chapter 11. I was reminded this week of how striking it is because it was just a little over a year ago I was in Jerusalem and we enjoyed a sumptuous dinner at a very swank hotel in Jerusalem. Don't you like that word, swank? That just came to me. Actually, it came to me in the first service, but I had to remark on it again, because that was so juicy, I wanted to use it twice. Swank. In other words, it was a very upscale hotel, and I mean, the tables were covered in white linen. The, 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 you know, the food was incredible. The utensils were silverware, goblets, everything. It was such a great dinner that uh, as we were finished, I, I looked and I just noticed for the first time there was no coffee cup and saucer. And uh, I was hankering for a cup of coffee. I'm not addicted. I want you to know that. It was just after such a great dinner, I, I really had a, just a nice, bold cup of coffee. Sounded, wow. So I got the food server's a, attention, and I said, may I have a cup of coffee? Now, <clears throat> it's been a long time since I've slapped anybody. I, in fact, I don't even know if I've ever slapped anybody, <laughs> quite frankly. But it, it, when I imagine in my mind what it would be like to slap somebody, and even though there was no mark on his face, it looked like I had slapped him when I asked for a cup of coffee. And, and he had such a stunned look on his face, and yet quickly he covered it up. He was a pro. And as a good server, he made it clear that, you know, I'm here to serve you. And so he, you know, in effect said, well, you know, we'll get back to you. Yes, sir, no problem. He kind of withdrew, almost like, you know, if you were to withdraw from the queen or something, not looking away, but kind of backing away. And then I saw him retreat to the edge of the room where he conferred with some other food servers, 
And then they conferred with the head waiter. And while they were conferring with the head waiter, they kept glancing over at me. (laughs) I'm telling you, I was really feeling uncomfortable. And in my spirit, I'm going, what have I done? I mean, I just want a cup of coffee. They provided the coffee. A little bit later, I got aside and I found out unbeknownst to me, unwittingly, I had violated a huge kosher law. I had violated a food law, which goes back to Deuteronomy 14.21, and it says this in Deuteronomy 14.21, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now that that's clear, <laughs> we can move on. No, you know, I, I realize you don't understand, I didn't understand, but I looked into this. You see, the problem wasn't asking for a cup of coffee. The problem was the creamer. Coffee is never served without creamer. And you never mix milk with meat because the rabbis established that that too was a violation of Deuteronomy 14.21. That you violate the Spirit of God's law if even you put milk on the table where meat has been eaten. Or if milk or any dairy product is used in the preparation or in any way mixed even with a sink in preparation or even if milk and meat should mix in your stomach without a day's and a fully required time between meals. I had no idea what I had stepped into. It helps us to appreciate, doesn't it? I mean, as... uh, As non-Jews, we become now aware in this particular episode and and example of what it would be to become like a Jew in order to be accepted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is exactly the issue that Paul is dealing with in his letter to the Galatians, for example. And that is exactly the issue that comes up in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. And it is the issue because of chapter 10 and the conversion of a man who was a centurion in the Roman imperial army who had a heart for God and God reached out to this man And through it, he summoned Peter. And through this course of events, the course of history, salvation history, the history of the church, the history of the Jesus people, our history has been changed. And it is through the leadership of Peter, and as we'll see, Paul, 
in recognizing and standing up for God's will that we Gentiles would be compelled, otherwise we Gentiles would be compelled to live like Jews, and it would be the addition of Jesus plus all of the things that make you acceptable before God as a Jew. All of the things that are additional. And so it would be Jesus plus. It would be Jesus and. It would be Jesus also. These things which would identify you as a good Jew. And here in chapter 10, all the way through chapter 15, we're given an inside look at the way the church arrived at this decision. Because it took time for what's happening in chapter 10, which primarily involves Peter. And I hope you'll give it a close reading, because I'm not, I'm not going to get through all that I want to cover today. So we're going to come back to this, and I hope you'll spend this week reading chapter 10 of Acts. But it is in chapter 10 that Peter and Cornelius and six that Peter took with him, six circumcised Jews, because all Jews are circumcised. I mean, you're set apart by circumcision and the purity laws, of which I already referred to with one specific example of the food laws that set you apart as special and devoted to God. And the six that uh, we find out that went with Peter, and then the household, the household of Peter and some associates, outside of those, the rest of the church has to catch up with what God is doing that is new. And that takes some time. And it ends in chapter 15 at this grand council. Because as People are coming to the gospel. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. And, and in Antioch, which is just north of Caesarea, there's a church up there that's just exploding for Christ. And people are coming to Christ right and left. And what's happening is that some of the church are having trouble catching up with the events in chapter 10 and 11. And so they're sending people up to what's going on in Antioch. And they're kind of making them feel like they're second-class citizens, that God is disappointed with them, or they're not really acceptable because they aren't behaving like good Jews. It's Jesus plus all the things that make you a good Jew to them. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the food laws. You can't mix, for example, your meat and your milk. And so eventually the people in Antioch, the church there, they say, we want to all get together and discuss God's will on this matter. And that's what leads to what happens in chapter 15. And there, Peter is decisive. In verses 7 through 11, he gives his testimony to what happened in chapter 10. And that's what he gives us in chapter 11 too. In chapter 11, he gives his testimony. So this is exciting stuff. And that we have some great things to learn about discerning and following God's will. And that's really at the heart of what I want us to look at this morning. Because here, at the heart of what God brings about in chapter 10 and the conversion of Cornelius and his household, is the issue of people being willing to follow God's will. And that's what we see here. Jesus' people showing others how to follow God's will. 
And we're going to see in chapter 11, in verses 2 and 3, and in verse 18, that the Jesus people care about God's will. That's important. They also show us that they follow God's will. And Peter demonstrates that in verses 4 through 17 of chapter 11. We're going to read, by the way, chapter 11, all of verses 1 through 18. But I'm kind of covering that. And Peter gives his testimony of what God had done in chapter 10. And he was a part of that. And it involved following God. And it was hard. It was not easy. And he bears witness and shares his testimony in chapter 11, verses 4 through 17. We'll look at that. But when he bears witness to what he had done, when you listen to his testimony, it just seems so tidy. Wow, it's so evident. God was doing this. It's, it's inevitable, almost, what God had done. But when you go back and you live through what God had done in chapter 10, you see it's not quite so tidy. And I want us to look at that. We'll get started today. But it has a lot to teach us about real life walking with God and discerning His will. And that it isn't always black and white, cut and dried. We're going to see some things that I think will really encourage us and be true to our own experience about what it's like to seek God's will, to try and follow God's will, to live by His will, and to walk with Him in that. And that's what we'll see in when we look at chapter 10 and how the Jesus people discovered God's will. So that's what we'll look at. Let's look at chapter 11 right now, and I want to read verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, now you remember Peter was traveling. We saw that even in chapter, in the end of chapter 9. He was visiting all these churches. That's kind of where we left off. And uh, now he's, he's drawn from Joppa to Caesarea in chapter 10. And now whether he visited, he stayed there for a while. He might have visited some other churches, but now he's back up in Jerusalem. Okay? And it's there, and note this, he says, uh, those who were circumcised took issue with him. That's putting it mildly. In fact, in chapter 8, uh, chapter, in this chapter, verse 18, just glance down there for a moment. It says, they quieted down. <laughs> they quieted down. Yeah, they were really taking issue over this. They were noisy about it. And then here's what they said to Peter. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Well, I'll tell you, from my experience that night in the hotel uh, restaurant of Jerusalem when I foolishly did something like asking for coffee after a meal, judging from the impression that that made, this is serious stuff. We'll talk about that. 
Verse 4, but Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence. Um, NIV says it a little differently. You know, he, from the beginning, he laid it out in sequence, something to that effect. <clears throat> Other versions say he gave an orderly account. This is the same word <clears throat> translated orderly account that, the, that Luke used all the way back in the gospel, verse chapter 1 verse 3 in talking about the orderly account that he was going to give in his two-volume work the gospel of luke and acts and the key thing here i think that we need to appreciate is when you give an orderly account of what has happened you have hindsight you have insight and what he gives us is a is a is an account that's just kind of gets right to the point and takes out some of the some of the fuzzy stuff if you will is a very clean and straightforward accounting because he sees things very clean and clearly now so he began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence saying and here's what i, I want you to get this overview of what god is doing and Peter says from his own experience, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I'd fixed my gaze upon it, was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, and the wild beasts, and the crawling creatures, and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Now remember, he was hungry. So there's a connection between his, his appetite and this vision. By no means, he says in verse 8, which is really a strong refusal. By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. Which, by the way, means that Peter denied. He refused to engage in eating this array of clean and unclean food because he had never done anything like that. He was a good Jew. And three times the Lord had to tell him, what the Lord has cleansed, do not treat as unclean or unholy. And this happened three times. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, please note the word behold in verse 11. I'll come back to that. Uh, some translations say, and then. But it, literally the word is, and behold, which is not the way we talk. But when you say, and behold, well, I'll talk about that in just a moment. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared before the house in which we're staying, uh, in the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And, behold, at that moment, 
And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings or without making judgments. Some say without delay, which would also be an implication of not having misgivings or, be, or making judgments. And these six brethren also were with me. We're not told how many are with us in chapter 10, but now he's got these guys right at his side. They're standing with him in this uh, gathering in which he's being questioned and he is in return telling what happened in chapter 10. And so he reports that. And then he says, he reported to us, that is the man whose house he went to, and he, we entered the man's house and he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved you and all your household. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John, baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And what they heard, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. I think it's really interesting that in chapter 11, in the opening verses, Peter gets home, if you will, and there... The other Jesus people. Now let me, when it says the the brothers or those of the circumcision, they were all circumcised. They were all Jews. There were no Gentiles. They were all followers of Jesus the Messiah. They were Messianic Jews believing in Jesus. But there were no Gentiles. All that we've been reading up through chapter 8 and 9 outside of the Ethiopian eunuch, which was an experience private to Philip, unless he told others. Well, I mean, we know he eventually told others, and I think that experience was probably shared on the heels of what God was doing with Cornelius and the other Gentiles that the church had to catch up to. You know, I had an experience in which God did something apart from me, too. And I was a part of what God was doing in the life of that Ethiopian eunuch who was clearly not a God-fearer in the traditional sense, certainly not a Jewish proselyte, and a Gentile. But up until this point, all the Jews, they knew up here, they knew in theory that eventually they were supposed to encompass the world with the gospel. You know what theory is? That's what we call theology, if you will. You know, when we say we know in theory, in other words, we know in book learning. We know in head knowledge. We know in good scientific guidance and direction. We, in other words, we know in truth. That's what we're saying when we say we know in theory. But in practice, it's always kind of like i got to run to catch that train because I'm a little bit behind. And we know this too. We know even with neighbors or people. I mean, when you're driving, you're not thinking about reaching out in the name of Jesus Christ and maybe demonstrating the gospel. 
No, you're more upset that this guy cut you off and violated your rights. And so you, you, know, you don't act in a very inspiring, Christ-like way. Sometimes we get comfortable within the fold and with the people who, who think and act like us. And we, we quit you know, thinking about being stretched for Christ. Or we forget about the extraordinary Gospel. And we tend to take it for granted. The whole church was packed with Jews who believed in Jesus the Messiah. We've heard that over and over again. And God had to shake things up and move them. And they weren't quite caught up with the will of God. And so when Peter gets back, he, they have heard that Peter had, had fellowship with. He had enjoyed a meal, which is a very intimate expression of friendship and fellowship with Gentiles and violated God's will. And what was at stake was a sense that not only had their prominent leader, Peter, violated God's will and not done his will, but it throws into question the credibility of him as a leader. But from what we know, and here's what I want you to appreciate, Peter faces potential trouble because he did follow God's will. Peter is answering to good Jesus people who are unsettled about what he has done because they are being prompted by the will of God, and yet Peter is on the hot seat. His credibility as a leader of God is in question. His actions are thought to be ungodly because he is following God's will. They're both following God's will. One just hasn't caught up with what God's doing. And so verses 2 and 3 raise the issue of doing God's will and the issue of Peter's credibility. And he's in trouble with God's people for doing God's will. You see, in following God's will... The others did not judge Peter as following God's will because what God was doing in their thinking was gauged by what they had always done and not what God was doing now. But the beautiful thing and the the upside that I see in this is that Jesus' people care about God's will. And I think that's always important. We always have to encourage that. I'll let you in on a little secret. And uh, over the years, it, it's, it, it's an assumption that I always, it's a, it's a ministry position of mine. That, you know, and, and I've been in ministry, I've been in pastoring for many, many years now in one capacity or, or another. And it's been over 22 as a, as a, you know, like a lead pastor, senior pastor but over 35 years in ministry at one level or another. And along the way, you know, um, there have have been good people that haven't always thought that I was really seeking the Lord or seeking His will. That I maybe wasn't really trusting Him or, or leading them in the right way. 
And, and I've chosen to always presume, and here's my ministry assumption, that they are troubled because they care about God's will. And that's a good place to start. Instead of just emphasizing the differences between us, realize we both care deeply about doing God's will. And that's the upside I really see here. That's what we see in verses 2 and 3. And then look at another beautiful thing in verse 18. When Jesus' people keep their eyes on God, we can see it right there that discerning His will can powerfully unite His, will, His people. They don't always... Um, handle the matter with grace, wisdom, and love, but God's will can win out in the end if we all keep our eyes on Him. And that's what we see in verse 18. Well, Peter answers this charge by telling them what God had done in verses 4 through 17. He tells the story of what God did, which is given to us in detail in chapter 10. Um, but I want us to appreciate the fact that there's a difference. Uh, there's not a difference of truth, but there's a difference of how Peter packages things. Because he now see, sees things very clearly. And what I want us to appreciate is this corresponds to our own experience. Think with me for just a moment. When you've really wanted God's will for your life, you just you you kind of cry out in your spirit. Just tell me what to do, Lord. We want the clouds to part and a voice from heaven. That's not what happens here. And yet when Peter gives us his account, it just seems almost that definitive. But a lot more went on. And it's that which we see in chapter 10. What, what is beautiful is that Peter arrives at this sense of conviction and certainty because he has stepped out and followed God's will as best he can. And I think we'll see that that is something that is closer to our experience than we often fully appreciate. We tend to set Peter on a pedestal or we set a, an Apostle Paul on a pedestal. And I'm not saying that they didn't actually see a vision or things like that, which may not always correspond exactly with our own experience. But there's a lot of things that correspond with our experience that we don't also acknowledge as a part of their experience. And we'll see it in chapter 10. But I see this uh, beautiful weave. In fact, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson says that in chapter 10, 11, and following leading up to chapter 15, but particularly in 10 and 11, and he says in all of the New Testament, there is no place where we find a fully nuanced picture of the church coming to decision where human frailty and God's will are both impressively displayed and that's what I want us to see and so let me just give you an overview uh, and, I'll, and I'll wrap up this and then I hope you'll read chapter 10 this week so that next week uh, we can go through chapter 10 and look at some of these things more closely but I want to bring some things to your attention devotion now the word devotion is not used in chapter 10 or chapter 11 per se uh, although it does say that 
Cornelius, for example, was a, a pious man. But what I wanted, by using the word devotion, I could also use the word lifestyle. I could use other words too, but I just want to give you one word to be thinking about. You know, we want God to lead and guide us. What's the, what's the setting? Or what's the optimal condition for that to happen? Well, here's the way I see a lot of people desiring God's will. Lord, I'm in a crisis. Help me. Get me out of this. Bail me out. And then, of course, we're driven to prayer. Almost like a, a genie, we take the bottle and we rub it because we want God's will for our lives. We want the answer to what we're facing. And so all of a sudden, circumstances, difficulties, the economy, some hardship, some pinch, some threat, something we didn't see coming. All of a sudden, we want the assurance of God's will. We want Him to speak specifically to us. But see, what I'm seeing in chapter 10 is not a life that's kind of like the tail wagging the dog or an event or Sunday morning experience or high holiday experience being the character of our Christian life. What I'm seeing is that in Peter's life and in Cornelius' life, we have examples of people who are mindful, almost like in lifestyle, of God's presence in their lives. In fact, in the description of Cornelius, right at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, it not only says he's pious and a God-fearer, but it says... And this is real plain language. It doesn't sound real biblical, but he prays all the time. Now, you may not be a Peter, and I may not be a Peter, or a Paul, or an apostle. But I'll tell you, even if I can't identify with them, I can identify with a guy who is described like Cornelius, a Gentile. He's, he's a guy who's seeking after God. That's a guy that I can identify with. And you, we should all be. In other words, he's not an ideal, he's not a perfect Christian, if you will. He's a guy kind of on the outside who's seeking God, who's yearning for God. He's an authentic, genuine guy who wants God to move and act in his life. And if that's at the heart of who we are, even if we're not an apostle, I think Cornelius shows us, and Peter seconds it or footnotes it, that we can expect to be hearing from God. We can expect that God's going to do some leading and directing in our lives if we're really seeking Him like that. But whether that is the case or not, I just want you to appreciate God works where we're seeking Him. Here's another thought that kind of ties into this. There's overlap. And, but... When, when, are these vision, when do these visions come? There's a vision to Cornelius that starts this whole thing off. Peter isn't even in the mix per se. He's not even on the radar of what God is doing yet. And what is Cornelius doing? He's talking to God. He's praying. And he has a vision. At noon, Peter goes up to the rooftop because he's going to pray. He's going to spend some time with God. He has a vision. And while he's having his vision, in other words, these guys 
are thinking about God. They're thinking about God. We live in a world that doesn't, doesn't encourage us to think about God at all. We live in a totally secular world that basically in everything that, that we experience in the medium of this culture and our society is basically, don't be foolish, God doesn't exist. There's a secular humanist way to, to understand everything that you experience. Everything. You're not being encouraged to think about God. So there aren't set times for prayer. There aren't five times a day in which all of society stops and gets down on its knees, rolls out its prayer mat and starts to pray. Or three times a day. Or any directed times. You don't even hear the bells of the church anymore. Where is God in your life? Peter and Cornelius had a place for God in their lives regularly. And it gave God a place to work in their lives. And also it made them aware of God working in theirs. I'll talk more about that later. Here's another thing. Obedience. Cornelius has this vision. And uh, he responds to it. He takes it seriously. In a secular world, you go, oh, that was a crazy idea. Where did that come from? Isn't that true? Come on, each and every one of us can think of a time where we felt a prompting of God. And we know it was of God because it was probably to witness or to get off our high horse and be more humble. Or to quit asserting ourselves and give some place to our husband or our wife or our children or someone else. You know, these are just real practical things that have to do with, with the things that have to do with God's love for us and our love for Him. And we go, that's silly. And why is it silly? Why is it silly? These guys took it seriously. I think that's significant. They expect God to speak to them. They expect God to be nudging them and prompting them and probing and leading. And you know what? The vision that Cornelius had wouldn't have made any sense or come to anything if he hadn't sinned those messengers. Peter goes up on the top of the roof. He's praying. He's waiting for lunch. He's so hungry. I don't know if he slipped into a, it says a trance. And he himself later refers to it a trance and a vision. Maybe it's that kind of in-between place where you're not entirely awake or not entirely asleep, but he, this, he has this very distinct vision. He doesn't, it says he's stumped. He's perplexed. The NIV doesn't go to, I mean, he is, verse 15, chapter 10, he really doesn't know what this means. And no sooner has the vision stopped, he's perplexed, and then it, what happens? He hears some guys calling out, hey, Peter, Peter, Peter. And then the Spirit speaks to him. But it doesn't, there's no behold in chapter 10. 
The behold comes in chapter 11 when he's telling it himself. He sees the conjunction of extraordinary events. Which brings me to another point that we'll talk about. Coincidence. He says, behold. He puts it together. He sees, I didn't understand this vision. In fact, verse 17 of chapter 10 says he's still thinking about it. He's still pondering it when they they call out. These messengers arrive. He doesn't know who they are, where they've come from. And the Spirit says, there's some prompting between the vision and these guys showing up and he sees them. One's a soldier. He knows these aren't you, boys. Excuse me. That probably wasn't. But you know what? He knew they weren't his people. He knew this was an issue. And the Spirit says, Peter, this is not the time for you to start making all kinds of judgments. Just go. Trust me. And he does. Vision, Spirit prompting. How did he know it was the Holy Spirit? I don't know. He says it was the Spirit prompting him. And the men come. And then as they're walking, it starts to unfold. What a conjunction. Let me just share. I'm Saturday at 9.30 a.m., I got a phone call. Now, you, I got to set the table. 9.30 Saturday, um, I'm usually working on my sermon, but I wish the sermon was finished. That's the way I feel every Saturday. But I don't feel, this is is the truth, I really don't feel competent before the Lord. Sometimes when you come across a passage like this, you're so overwhelmed by, by what God is doing here and how important it is. You feel like you're not up to the task. And I was really wrestling with even how to organize this, boil it down, present it. And I was still trying to do it in, in one sermon, you know, at the time. And I, I, I just felt really small and, and unworthy. And, and I was struggling with a lot of personal spiritual warfare, feeling like, I don't, you know, I really, I do sometimes think, maybe I shouldn't even be a pastor. Why should I, you know, I'm just not the guy to be doing this. This is the kind of stuff that you're experiencing. And the phone rings. And I thought, I don't need a phone call at a time like this. My back is against the wall. I don't know if I'm ever going to get this sermon ready. And I look down, and it's the name of a guy that I haven't talked to in two years. I pick it up. I say, hello. Well, you probably don't remember who this is, but this is. I say, oh, I remember. I'm so glad to hear from you. Let me set the stage. He stopped talking to me two years ago. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was on my way down from men's retreat. We had arranged to get together. We were dear, dear friends. Dear friends. He would call me every Saturday at 9.30 and pray for me, knowing my spiritual battle. We had lunch because he had gotten married and I was going to meet his new family. And we had a wonderful lunch. It was a great experience. I just thought, man, this is wonderful. After lunch, uh, I went home, came back to Visalia. But the next day, wrote him a note. Thank you. That was such a great experience. Never heard back. Phoned him. We talked every week. So I called him. No answer. No return call. Emails. Follow-up calls. Nothing. It was like he fell off the face of the earth. What happened? 
Well, you know what I assumed? I assumed that somehow, without my knowing it, I had deeply wounded, insulted, or offended him. I had wronged him. And I couldn't figure out what it was, so I called again and tried to, what have I, whatever I've done, let me, it wasn't my heart to do that. Let me fix this. For two years I've wondered about that. I haven't forgotten him. I haven't just, it's been on my heart. And there are so many reminders. And here I am struggling and I'm thinking about coincidence. Lord, how am I supposed to package all these things together? The, the conjunction of remarkable events. And the phone call comes from him. And he says, oh, it wasn't you. He says, it was me. And, and he con- you know, there was that same transparency of friendship. He confessed. He says, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I ignored your advice. I had done something that you said was unwise to do in the Lord. I went ahead and did it because I wanted to do it myself. And everything blew up in my face. And I was ashamed and embarrassed. But the beauty of this, you see, is that this was a sign to me. Not only did we get our friendship repaired, I was able to ask him to pray for me. And I could tell you, I can't tell you how much that prayer meant to me Saturday morning. But from God, it was saying to me, as I was discussing this whole, thinking about this whole thing, God was saying, yes, John, there is a conjunction of divine, extraordinary, remarkable events. My hand is in it. I'm involved in your life. Expect great things from me. I've still got my hand on you. I still want to use you. Don't despair. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. You know, go forward in faith. Go forward in my strength. Go forward in my power. Expect great things from me. I'm not far away. I'm right here. You see, that's the kind of thing that we are experiencing in chapter 10. They're open and receptive. I see they so many different ways they're open and receptive. They're reflective. They're sensitive to the Spirit. Take God's prompting seriously. I'll talk more about that. Humility. Humility, a proper humility. For example, when Peter shows up, Cornelius, Cornelius gets down on the ground and worships him. In other words, it isn't that he worships him as God, but he falls before him and, and prostrates himself before Peter. Now what does that tell you about a Roman centurion getting down on the ground before a Jew who's a Galilean fisherman? This guy's humble before the Lord. God said, sin for this man. This man shows up and he is so moved by this that he gets down before the Lord. What about Peter? I'll tell you, if I was just a Jew and a Galilean fisherman who's never getting respect and a Roman centurion gets down before me, I might feel pretty special. I might bask in that a little while. I might lose my head, you know, and say, hey, you know what? I guess I am something pretty special. And Peter says, immediately, I'm a man just like you. There's a proper humility in all of this that keeps our eyes on God, that it's about Him and not about me. Wow, 
I just, oh man, this stuff is so great. Scripture, we'll talk more about that, but Scripture really plays into this, into Peter's thinking. It's like all kinds of lights are going on that are confirmed by Scripture. And when the Spirit is poured out upon the Gentiles, Peter had nothing to do with this. It's like he's standing there seeing what God has done. These, these Gentiles experience what they themselves had experienced. And Peter is confirmed in that by the very word of Jesus Christ. That this was a common experience to the people of God, to the Jesus people, to the people who live by faith and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord of all. We'll talk about that all more next week. Will you stand with me? Shelly told me not to say this. I, I just can't help myself, you know. I, I am sorry. Yeah, she told me after the first, because I said in the first, I am sorry that I went a little bit long, but I, I just this stuff is so, I hope that uh, you won't let that get in the way and, and that this week, starting today, you'll just be mindful of, just let the Lord into your life. That's really what they were doing. Um, you'll express that in prayer, thinking about the Lord. You don't always have to get down on your knees or have a special time of day to pray, although routine is sometimes the, the setting for great things that God wants to do in your life. But just be talking with God. Look at the things around you through the eyes of God. If you're not in His Word on a regular basis, you need to make that a part of your lives. His Word is living and alive and, and, and just so rich and it will encourage your heart. And there's so much more. So we'll talk about that. You be reading in chapter 10 and 11 and even up through 15 if you if you get bored with chapter 10 but there's a lot there and uh, let me pray for us I'll bless you and let you go father thank you for your love thank you for your son thank you for your spirit at work in our lives we do want your best for our lives and sometimes will your will or your law or your word is kind of imposing but father we just we want to know your heart we want to care about the things you care about. We want to emphasize the things you emphasize. We want to walk with you by faith. We want others to see your presence in our lives. We want to be real because of Jesus in our lives. So lead and guide us this way this week. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.